0: So we are continuing in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, We've entered the section of Mark's Gospel where we see the the passion or the suffering of Christ. And we'll really be in this section, these two chapters, from now up until the Sunday uh, before Easter. We're in, in, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. There is a my goodness is this going to do this every time there's a there's a high school located in a a small town that's just south of salt lake city utah which is where the movie footloose for those of you remember it was actually filmed and at this high school they have a a pretty unique way of inviting one another to dances Uh, instead of calling or texting or, or somehow sending the person a message you have to make some grand gesture showing how much you want this person to go to the dance with you. You might do something like leaving something on their porch. You might decorate their car. Uh, You might break into their bedroom and and leave a note or roll their room or or something like that. Uh, One girl, they they do a Sadie Hawkins dance there, and and one girl left a, a goat on the guy's front porch with a poster that said, I'm not kidding. I'd love to go to the Sadie Hawkins dance with you. Uh, someone else left a live chicken with a pack of Starburst, and this was in response to being asked out. And they said, "I'm not going to chicken out. I've been bursting to say yes." Oh, come on, these are good dad jokes. Uh, there's there's another who left a left a tree on a guy's porch and said it would be tremendous if you would go out with me and he responded by saying needless to say I'd be burning up if I said no and he lit all the trees in her front yard on fire (laughs) and she said it was fine she appreciated that there was snow on the ground anyway so that you know it's all good now what's what's all that about on one level, that's just kind of this fun tradition, odd tradition in this little town in, in, in Utah. But in but in some sense, when you're doing this, you're saying, here's how much I would value you going to the dance with me. Here's how much I would value your company. That I'm willing to be this silly. I'm willing to be this extravagant to show you how much I would, would value you coming with me. I find you valuable. I find you're going with me Valuable, and so I'm going to demonstrate your worth by making some grand gesture of some sort. Now, um, they were going—we probably all say—to sort of silly lengths to get a date. Well, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Well, well, why would we spend thousands of dollars on season tickets to our favorite football team? Our tons of money to go see a concert or pay exorbitant prices for scout tickets to Hamilton and drive across the country to see a play why would we do that why do we spend our spend so much time making ourselves beautiful if we're hoping to draw the attention of someone else who we think is beautiful well to quote the greatest band of 1994 they were kind of a one-year wonder uh, counting crows I was down at the New Amsterdam staring at this yellow-haired girl. Mr. Jones strikes up a conversation with a black-haired flamenco dancer. She's suddenly beautiful. We all want something beautiful. We all want something beautiful. Whether it's trying to get the date, trying to get the, the ticket to the big game, we all want something beautiful. We're all chasing something beautiful. The beautiful girlfriend, the beautiful boyfriend, the beautiful spouse, the beautiful home, the beautiful vacation, the beautiful family, the beautiful life. And why do we chase these beautiful things? Well, the the next line in the Counting Crows song, we all want something beautiful. And then they say, man, I wish I was beautiful. We all want something beautiful. Man, I wish I was beautiful. I think we want something beautiful because we think if we get that something beautiful, it will make us beautiful as well. We'll be beautiful too. And so we're going to look at two people this morning. uh, One of whom is chasing beauty. And one of whom has been found by beauty. So uh, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now would you pray with me? Father in heaven, uh, I pray for your help now, uh, that you would speak through these words uh, and that you would give them life, that you would help me to to accurately portray the truth of the scripture that we have just read together. Uh, Father, that you would work in spite of my sin and work in spite of my weakness, but that you would work to feed your people and to nourish them and to help us to see the beauty uh, of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So let me set this up before I kind of jump into our our two points. Jesus is at the house of Simon the leper. Uh, In John's account of this event in the Gospel of John, we're told that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, uh, whom Jesus raised from the dead, are also there and that they're giving a dinner for Jesus. And while they're there, a woman who John identifies as Mary comes up Uh, with an alabaster flask of pure nard, which is probably from India. It's a very expensive perfume. She comes and she breaks the flask open and she pours it over Jesus' head. Uh, John adds that she wipes his feet with her hair as well. And some of the people who were there are outraged by this. Uh, we're, We're told that they were outraged because this nard was worth 300 denarii. And three hundred denarii is about a year's wages, and they think, "Well, if she's going to throw away a year's wages like that, this is kind of this is just a waste of that money. She could sell this, she could give it to the poor. Why waste it in this way?" And Jesus responds by saying. You'll always have the poor with you. And it is good for you to take care of the poor. And you're going to have opportunities to do that. But you won't always have me. And so what she has done is actually a beautiful thing. Judas, in response to all of this, uh, goes out to the chief priest. And he agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, which is about four months wages so two points i want to make this morning i want us to, to, to think about a picture of someone who is chasing beauty and then look at a picture of someone who's been found by beauty a picture of someone who's chasing beauty and a picture of someone who's been found by beauty beauty uh, judas betrays the one who was his teacher betrays the one who has been his friend why why does he do this He does it for the money, right? He does it for the money. Why would you betray a friend for money? Why would you betray a friend for, for four months wages? Because you find the money more beautiful than the friend, right? Because the money is more beautiful to you than the friend is. Or to put it another way, Judas was convinced that money could make his life more beautiful than Jesus could. And so his heart was drawn to the money and not to Jesus. And and like Judas, we're like him in this way in that we chase things that we think are beautiful. We chase after things that we think will make our lives beautiful. In the movie uh, Big Fish, uh, Ewan McGregor plays Edward Bloom and he's depressed and he's talking to Danny DeVito who's kind of the, the circus ringleader or, or whatever he is. And McGregor, Danny DeVito says, what's wrong? And McGregor says... I just saw the woman I'm going to marry, but I don't know her name, and I lost her. I'm going to spend every day for the rest of my life looking for her, and I'll either marry her or I'll die alone. And Danny DeVito says, I know that family. I know all about them. I know her. She's way out of your league, kid. You're never going to get her. You don't even have a job. You might as well give up trying. And Ewan McGregor says... If you'll give me a job, I'll work night and day for you and you don't have to pay me. Just tell me where she is. And Dan Vita says, okay, I won't pay you and I'll only tell you one thing a month about her until you figure out who she is and how to find her. And the guy says, deal. I'll do it. I'll do it. Why? Who does that? Someone who's chasing beauty. Someone who's chasing something beautiful. Someone who's convinced that if I have this, then my life will be beautiful. What are you chasing this morning? What, what are you convinced that if I get this, my life will be beautiful? Maybe it's a relationship. Uh, maybe it's a certain standard of living, a certain level of success. To have people think you're, you're funny or creative or cool or put together or, or beautiful or, or whatever it is. We chase the things that we think will make us beautiful, right? We, we run after them. But here's the thing. When we chase after these things, when we make them ultimate things instead of making God the ultimate things, they have this way of enslaving us, don't they? They, because we're saying to ourselves, I must have this. I'm, I'm not going to be happy. My life is not going to be beautiful until I get this. And so we devote everything to getting this. And it has this enslaving effect, it affects everything about our lives. Uh, I, I heard the story this week of a guy named Carl Tanzler. Carl Tanzler was a doctor in a tuberculosis ward in Key West uh, around the <clears throat> turn of the century. And he fell in love with one of his young patients. Except she didn't, she, didn't, she didn't have any use for him. She didn't love him back. And eventually the patient died. Uh, and she was buried. And his obsession with her, though, didn't end. He became convinced that the, her, her casket was filling with groundwater. And so he had her dug up. Uh, he paid for her to be dug up and put in an above-ground tomb. And there in the tomb, he put like a little, like an opening so that he could talk to her. And so, y'all are all creeped out right now. And so, so she, so she could hear him. And eventually he came so obsessed that he took her out of the tomb and he brought her to his house. She was dressed in a wedding dress and he put like glass eyes in to replace the ones that had rotted out. And she was there for seven years before anybody figured out what was going on. Hey, I really just say this for Halloween. I wish I could see your faces right now. Um, it's a really creepy story, but but he literally he was obsessed with this person, and he literally brought death into his house. Like he literally brought death into his house. When 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 we're convinced that something other than Jesus is going to make us beautiful, and we chase it and chase it and chase it, it's like we're spiritually bringing death into our homes Um, career success extra dollars an addiction a a hobby that continuously takes you away from your family when we make anything other than Jesus our ultimate thing uh, the the thing we have to have in order to be beautiful it always brings death instead of the life that we think it's going to bring but here's the thing uh, aside from that These things that we chase after, even when we get them, they never do for us what we really thought they were going to do for us. Uh, Because there's no one thing, there's no one person, there's no one pleasure, there's no experience that can bring you ultimate beauty and ultimate satisfaction and, and the ultimate rest for which we all long. Uh, Tim Keller has this really old paper called, How Can I Know God? And I'm pretty sure he's channeling C.S. Lewis in some of this, but I couldn't find the C.S. Lewis quote. So I just want to read this section to you. Keller writes, When we first fall in love, when we first marry, when we finally break into our chosen field, when we at last get that weekend house, these breakthroughs arouse in us anticipation of something which, as it turns out, never occurs. We eventually discover that our desire for that precious something is a longing no-lover, our career, or achievement, even the best possible ones, can ever satisfy. The satisfaction fades even as we close our fingers around our goal. Nothing delivers the joy it seemed to promise Many of us avoid the yawning emptiness through busyness or denial, but at best there is just a postponement. So he says, how do do we respond then when we see that these things haven't brought us what we thought they were going to bring us? He says, one, one thing we do is we blame the things themselves by finding fault in everyone and everything around you. You believe that a better spouse, a better career, a better boss or salary would finally yield the elusive joy. Many of the most successful people of the world are like this, bored, discontented, running from new thing to new thing, often blaming counselors, mates, partners, or settings. We respond, secondly, by blaming ourselves by trying harder to live up to standards Many people believe they have made poor choices or have failed to measure up to challenges and to achieve the things that would give them joy and satisfaction. Such people are racked with self-doubts and tend to burn themselves out. They think, if only I could reach my goals, then this emptiness would be gone. But it is not so. In a third way we respond, by blaming the universe itself. By giving up, seeking fulfillment at all. This is the person who says, yes, when I was young, I was idealistic. But at my age, I have stopped howling after the moon. This makes you become cynical. You decide to repress that part of yourself that once wanted fulfillment and joy. But you become hard, and you can feel yourself losing your humanity, compassion, and joy. Uh, Judas eventually realizes what he has done. He realizes that 30 pieces of silver are... They they aren't so beautiful to him anymore. They aren't going to satisfy him. I guess you could say he fits into the blames himself category, and he hangs himself. Uh, Maybe you're someone this morning who's become cynical. Like I'm just the universe is just against me. Uh, Maybe you're someone this morning that you're you're blaming yourself. This is just my fault. If I had just worked harder, if I just worked harder, I'd be happy. But maybe you're blaming the thing and think if I just get another thing, then everything's going to be okay. But what if the problem isn't that the universe is against you? What if the problem isn't that you just need to work harder to make things work right? What if the problem isn't that you just haven't found the right tour yet? What if putting in five more hours at work this week isn't going to make it better? What if the new job is just as bad as the last one? What if you've gotten your kid out of that stage finally and then you're on to the next stage and you're still not happy? You still haven't found it. Maybe you're chasing beauty. Maybe you're trying to find the beautiful life in the wrong places. Which brings us to our second picture. The first picture is of someone who is chasing beauty. The second is of someone who has found beauty, or maybe better put, has been found by beauty. Uh, Mary. Uh, Mary takes this flask of perfume that's worth a year's wages. Uh, This was probably for her some kind of family heirloom. I mean, think about how long it would take to save up a year's wages think about how long it takes up to save up a month's wages or a week's wages it takes a long time and she takes this and she pours it all over jesus now why is she doing this Uh, anointing in that culture would be an act of hospitality towards someone you honored very greatly maybe toward a a visiting rabbi or something like this but you certainly wouldn't anoint them with a year's worth of perfume a year's worth of excuse me a year's worth of salary I mean, if, if you came over to my house and I really like you, I might offer you the good beer and the Papa John's instead of the cheap beer and the Little Caesars. But, I, but I'm, not spending, I'm not spending a year's worth on my, of my salary to honor you unless you're not just a dinner guest. Unless you're not just any dinner guest. Unless you happen to be the most beautiful person. Unless you're more deserving of honor than anybody I could ever dream of having in my house. Unless I've seen you raise my brother from the dead. Unless I'm beginning to figure out who you are and what you've come to do. Uh, Judas gives up Jesus for money. Mary gives up money and the security that that represents in order to express her love to Jesus. What's the difference? What's the difference? Mary saw the beauty of Jesus and Judas doesn't see it at all. Uh, look, if, if you're not a fan of my team, you would never understand why I would drop thousands of dollars on season tickets. If you've never been to, to Paris, you'd never understand why somebody would blow tons of cash to go over there and have a month's vacation vacation. In France. Uh, if you've never been head over heels in love. You can't understand why a poor man. Who could barely afford to pay the rent. Would spend $50 on flowers for his wife. On her birthday. It seems so extravagant when you have so little. It seems like such a waste. But we respond lavishly. To the things we love don't we? And there's, there's something good about that. There's something right about that. We recognize beauty. We recognize the things we treasure and we respond appropriately. Mary has seen what Jesus has done. She's seen his beauty. She's beginning to understand who he is. And it's changing her. It's changing her. Instead of clinging to this flask of perfume, this is my retirement, this is my security, this is my life. She breaks it open in this act of humble devotion and worship and honors Jesus by anointing him with it. And Jesus says, What she has just done is not a waste. What she has just done is a beautiful thing. She, she did this beautiful thing. She was becoming in herself beautiful because she had seen the beauty of Jesus. You see how it works? Her beautiful act was a response to the beauty that she saw in Jesus. She became beautiful because the, beautiful, the beauty of Jesus had found her. Have you seen his beauty? And this is like an odd question to ask. and We, don't, we like to think in systematic categories of justification and sanctification. What is the inerrancy of scripture? Okay, those are good. I like those. Have you seen the beauty... Of Jesus, has He become beautiful to you? Have Have you seen that that He's the only one who can bring ultimate beauty into your life? Because He's the only one that, through His death and through His resurrection, can restore your relationship to God, which is the problem we're separated from. It's the reason we're separated from beauty in the first place, because our sin has separated us from the one who is beauty, who is the source of all beauty, and 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 the real problem in our life isn't that we haven't found the right toy yet the real problem is this shattered relationship with God and yet here's Jesus he comes to fix that uh, through his death and through his resurrection and if you see that if you see that if you if you can see the beauty of what he has done in order to bring about your forgiveness that will change you if you have seen that then like Mary you'll worship not because you have to but because you want to because you find Jesus himself beautiful Uh, John Piper has this this fairly well known story he says uh, what if I take my wife a dozen long stem roses on her birthday or on her anniversary and she gives me a hug and says thank you and my response to that is don't mention it it was my duty how would she react to that he, he writes this dutiful roses are a contradiction in terms if i'm not moved by a spontaneous affection for her as a person the roses do not honor her in fact they belittle her they are a very thin covering for the fact that she does not have the worth or the beauty in my eyes to kindle affection so when, when we really see who Jesus is, we begin to worship not simply because somewhere in the Bible it says you're supposed to worship Jesus, not simply because we're supposed to, but we bring him our worship because we found him to be beautiful. And we want to. Uh, seeing the beauty of who Jesus is, seeing the beauty of what Jesus has done is what changes us. Uh, I, I heard the story recently And I'd never heard this before that uh, on 9-11 the planes planes that were outside the United States couldn't come back into the United States. And so there are all these planes out over the Atlantic. They're like, you know, you can't come here right now. We kind of got this thing going on. And so they sent them all to Newfoundland. And they sent them to this one little town called Gander. And Gander had a population of 10,000 people. And suddenly they had 8,000 people show up in airplanes in their little town. And you know, they are like, what, what do we do with all these people? They were there for three days. And so the mayors of the town surrounding that little city, they all got together. And they closed all the schools. And they shut down all the non-essential businesses. And they, they took care of those passengers. They took care of those people. And, and it was a beautiful thing. And, and how do you respond when well, someone has done a, a beautiful thing for you? The passengers on one of the planes uh, recognized what had been done for them and, and seeing it was a very impoverished place. And the the kids had a heart. they were dropping out of school, they weren't going to college, and so... They set up a scholarship fund and they raised like $15,000 immediately on the plane when they started going back to the United States. And that fund now has a million dollars in it. And kids who were never going to go to school have gone on to be doctors. They've gone on to, to earn their, their PhDs. There's this beautiful thing that was done for these folks and in response it changed them and they did a beautiful thing in return. Have you responded to what jesus has done for you on the cross how have you responded have, have you seen the beauty of it has it has it changed you at all or is it just kind of head facts floating around right, chris lungard tells a story of his five-year-old son he said it was august they were getting ready to go back to school or to start school he'd never been to school and he was so excited about getting on a bus for the first time and going and be with other kids in all these buildings but Longard writes my son is only in love with something in his imagination he has no idea of what it means to really be in school and then he writes many people are the same with christ they claim to love him and long to be with him, but they couldn't tell you the first thing about him. They do know, of course, that to die and be with him would be better than going to that other place. But those who say they long for Christ, yet never gaze on his beauty by faith in this life, are only kidding themselves. This is a strong statement, isn't it? He says, those who say they long for Christ, yet never gaze on his beauty by faith in this life. Are only kidding themselves. I'll I'll close with this. Well, no, I won't. I've got two more stories. Um, sorry. In in his book, the uh, the power of habit. This is a fascinating book. It's written by a guy named Charles uh, Duhigg. I think is how you say it. And he talks about how one having one capstone habit can change everything about your life. Like finding one thing and beginning to do this one thing on a regular basis. Can kind of have these cascading effects in the rest of your life. Like you know, you would say, "All right, I'm going to get up and run every day," and suddenly all these other things that you were trying to change begin to fall into place as well. And so, to illustrate that, he he tells the story of uh, Paul O'Neill. Paul O'Neill was called to be the hired to be the CEO of Alcoa, a big aluminum company, in 1987, and he gets up to give his speech to the stockholders. And basically, his whole speech is about workplace safety. Like, I think it was maybe an hour. I don't know. It's just on and on about workplace safety. And the people who are there are going, all the investors are there. They're like, this is going to be the worst CEO ever. Like, he is not talking anything about profits. He's not getting us jazzed up. You know, there's no vision for this company. He's just droning on about workplace safety. In fact, one of the investors who was there, he said he went out and he got on the phone And he calls his his 20 wealthiest clients and he said, you need to sell this stock immediately. They've just put some hippie in charge of the company and the whole thing's going to crash. And he said later that it was the biggest mistake he'd ever made in his life. Because here's what happened. Within a year of the speech, Alcoa's profits hit a record high. By the time he retired, their annual profits were five times higher. Their market capitalization was $27 billion. If you had invested a million dollars on the day he gave that speech in 1987 and held it until the day he retired in the year 2000, you would have earned a million dollars in dividends and your stock would be worth five times as much as the day you bought it. Why? Why Why did that happen? He found a keystone habit. And he focused relentlessly on worker safety. And you'd have to read the story of the company. That was their thing. But it had this cascading effect into the entire culture of the company until the whole place was transformed. One thing. One thing. What if there was one thing I could do to change my life as a Christian that would have this cascading effect... In all the rest of my life, what would that one thing be? Psalm 27, David writes, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. One thing that will change everything about my life, that would change everything about your life, is if we learn to gaze on the beauty of of the lord if we learn to gaze on the beauty of the lord make it your prayer that jesus would show you his beauty that you would taste and see and sense that he is beautiful i, I will close with this this is from the hymn uh, the sands of time are sinking and i just think it expresses so well the beauty of christ that and i'm trying to get at here oh christ he is the fountain The deep sweet well of love, the streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean fullness, his mercy does expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride, eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that the the message of the gospel, uh, that you yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would be beautiful to us. And that as we see, that as we, help us to see that. It often is just just words. Help us to see the reality of our sin and yet that you have loved us. And Lord Jesus, you have given yourself for us. You You have done a beautiful thing, you who are beautiful. Help us to see that. And be changed by that. Uh, Help us to learn how to gaze upon your beauty. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.